سکتے ہیں جن کے اچھے خیال اور اچھے جذبات ہیں you know, amazing gone starting and then you played Adibasant and Basant Pancham. Basant Pancham and then we ended with Perry. Love that concert. Did not know what to kind of expect. We've, we've been hearing you online mm-hmm. um, first time we've met. Mm-hmm. So just wanted to find out more about you and your music. Mm-hmm. So where did you start learning? We were chatting about this earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, I started learning music when I was about four with piano. Yeah. Uh, piano is a good instrument because uh, to start with, because uh, you can't play out of tune on it. So, um, uh, it's, it's a nice, safe place for a musician to start, you know, just kind of learn the notes and get control over your fingers. Um, and so I learned piano until I was about eight or nine. And then uh, I shifted to the upright bass uh, and I played in orchestras and I was, I, you know, I, I was, you know, I guess I was kind of a child prodigy on the bass. I played a lot of, of, of concerts at like uh, orchestras and whatnot around the New York area. Um, but I wasn't really that into it until I started playing jazz, improvisation kind of, I mean, my, my natural disposition is um i i like being challenged and uh whenever i see something that's hard i immediately get interested by it so the, the things that i'm most interested in tend to be super challenging so i got really interested in jazz and jazz harmony because that was a total mystery to me at the time and then I, later i got interested in hindustani music because that seemed like impossibly complicated yeah and uh and how did you transition from that like why at what time did you start thinking about Indian music or when did you hear Indian music and you went, oh, what's this? So um, I think the first time I heard Indian music, I was probably about 14, 13, 14. And uh, of course, I started with Pandit Ravi Shankarji. Ravi Shankar. Uh, Ravi, Ravi, Ravi Shankar. Ravi, Ravi yeah, Shankar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, in the West, his music is, for, for Indian musicians, it's by far the most available And uh, I remember being totally blown away by his playing, especially I remember hearing that he only played with two fingers. Yeah. And I remember being like, how the heck oh. is he playing that fast with only two fingers? Um, uh, but I I learned a little bit from, uh, I was learning jazz with Dan Weiss, who is uh, uh, quite a well-known jazz drummer right now. He lives in uh, New York. I grew up in New York City. And uh, um, he... Dan also learned tabla, so he started teaching me some things about uh, rag and tal and how to listen to the music, and uh, he would quiz me on some stuff. And uh, one time he, he, I had a lesson with him, and his teacher, uh, Pandit Samir Chatterjee, invited him for a class. And so he like let me tag along to his, his lesson because I was supposed to have a lesson with Dan. And, you know, so... Um, And that was kind of an eye-opening experience. Um, and so um, 
it was still very much um, on the side for me. I was mostly doing Western music, even though I was listening to primarily at that time, uh, Pandit Nikhil Banerjee and just Aliyev Prakansal. And uh, I was falling in love with their music, even though I didn't really understand it. Um, and when I was, I, I got accepted to the New England Conservatory. And after my freshman year, I was getting more and more frustrated with the bass mm. because I felt like I had more to say than the instrument would allow me to say and that the role of the bass would allow, like I would work on all this fancy stuff and then I'd go play a gig for four hours where no one would even give me a solo. And, you know, I just have to thump away, which, I, you know, I'm glad that I had that experience because it gives me an appreciation for accompaniment. Um, but um, I felt like I had more to say than that instrument would allow. Mm. And so uh, I bought my I bought my first guitar when I was 15 and I messed around on it for a little bit. And I called up somebody for lessons. I forget the gentleman's name, but it was all so different. You know, it was kind of overwhelmingly different, the culture. And I was just a 15-year-old Jewish kid from New York, you know. So I, I kind of freaked out and sent the instrument back and was like, oh, I can't do it. And then, uh, but it kept tugging at me. And so when I was about 18, I bought another instrument. And uh, I just kind of, I guess from the moment that I got that instrument, it just took over my life. I stopped playing bass and... It also happened to be that my girlfriend of two years broke up with me, and uh, I was heartbroken. You had time. You had time. I would. I was heartbroken, and so I just practiced like ten hours a day, basically, you know, forgetting my heartache. <laughs> well, uh, to to flip the question, like I mean, the the story's been about you uh, from Western music, learning, you know, being having affinity towards Indian classical music. Before you had that, or before you devoted yourself to Indian classical music, did you see any shortcomings? Or as a person from the Western side of music, looking at Indian music, did you say, yeah, it's got this, but it hasn't got that? No, not at all. I, I was, it was exactly the opposite. I was like totally in love with the complexity and the nuance. I mean, coming from Western music, I was listening to Nikola and I was in awe of the level of detail and like fine filigree that he would put on every note. Every note was sculpted and presented like on a platter. And I, I was like, wow, jazz isn't like this at all. It's more about note choice. Mm. It's not really, a. I mean, I guess at the highest level you could say it's about that, but at least in how I had perceived it at that time, it was more about like learning what scale to play over what chord and like, but uh, Hindustani music to me is like, I would say one of the most complete musics in the world, uh, because uh, if if we examine what's what's present in music, right? If we just look at broad categories, we have melody, rhythm, then we have harmony, which could be present, right? We have uh, orchestration, what instruments are playing, dynamics, volume. Uh, we have uh, speed. We have range, you know, high, low. We have uh, tone you know, tonal quality, um, form, right? So this is like nine or 10 main components of music. Hindustani music has all of them and it does have harmony just to a lesser extent than, than Western music because everything is being played against the drum and harmony by definition is one or two, two or more notes at the same time. 
Um, and I've I've made the uh, the argument to a few people that that Indian classical music does have harmony. It's just linear harmony. It's like like when you listen to the Bach cello suites, the harmony is being articulated through one line, and uh, you could exactly like especially if you I hear this progression most common most most prevalently in the music of uh, of the Maihar Garana. Pandit Nikhil Energy, Ustad Ali Prakansab, Pandit Ravi Shankarji, um, and you, I, I definitely can hear like a harmonic progression through their playing, and that's why I think their phrasing sounds so balanced is because they're kind of weaving through this this um, pro this progression, for lack of a better word. But um, uh, I think, but because harmony has has not been um, explored the same way it has been in Western music. All of the attention, uh, form is also not really as explored as it is in Western music, right? The form for Hindustani music is kind of set. Orchestration is not really as explored in Western music, uh, as in Hindustani music, as much as it is in Western music. It's kind of, it is what it is, and that's how it is. What do you mean by orchestration? Orchestration meaning like, um, are you going to have a brass band or a string quartet or a... Uh, you know, a violin concerto, like who's playing yeah. and what instruments do you want? Do you want to have this chord played by the flutes with the trombone right, right. or, you know what I mean? Yeah. This yeah. is a solo music. Yeah. So um, we're like, we're, we're like, when it comes to Western music, mm. dude, we like, we don't know much about it. Mm. So I can, this is really insightful from, from that angle as well, where it's like, you know, you have background of both types of, of the music you came yeah. from that background and you've come into this one mm. whereas like the other world is quite foreign to me yeah, yeah. well i think for both sides they can be quite foreign but if yeah. from i mean just to finish my thought before I, I go on to this um but because all of these other things um this you know orchestration harmony form are not as explored in western or in in hindustani music all of the attention all of your focus because i mean if you fig figure a western composer western musician they're going to be doing music for 10 hours a day, whatever. An Indian music is, uh, musician is going to be doing it for 10 hours a day too. You have the same amount of time and attention. So in Indian music, the time and attention gets focused on melody and rhythm. And the melody and rhythm in Hindustani music has been developed to such a high level. I think it's some of the most complex and intricate in the world. Uh, I would say it is the most complex and intricate in the world. Um, and so just about what you said about me coming from both musics, I think for a lot of people who only know one, it seems quite different. Mm -hmm. But for me, having learned both overwhelmingly, when I listen to either music, I'm, uh, I'm just kind of, uh, I'm overwhelmed by how similar they are and how music is kind of the same. It's just these little things which are different. Yeah. You know? It, does it like seep into your, like when I hear people that play classic Hindustani music mm. and they don't come from a Hindustani background like yourself, you know, mm. a lot of the times what happens is the music that you get to hear, it doesn't have that same, I don't know, soul that you, you kind of, the, the alaps, mm. the, the way the bandish develops and even the way you play the bandish, everything, even if you say you take a, take a tabla player, for example. A lot of times you hear, hear someone play tabla if they don't have an Indian background, mm -hmm. say. 
it sounds like I double a pro a lot. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying this with anyone in mind or anything like that, but this has been my observation. I don't see that when I listen to your music. Well, and thank you. I'm just wondering if any of that kind of. Well, let me ask you something. So, yeah. um, teach me some some simple. Say like two words in Punjabi for me to learn right now. Say don't say something bad. Kidda. 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 What does it mean? It means what's up. What's up? Kidda. Yeah. So if I said kidda. Yeah. Would I be saying it properly? No. No. Yeah. So if you had to explain to me how to say it properly, mm. and I had to learn to say it properly, kidda. Yeah. Right. Did I say it right? Almost. Better, yeah. Almost. Almost. Yeah. Say it again. Kidda. Kidda. Yeah, Is it that. through the nose? Yes. At the end? Yes. Kidda. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Again, but not so, that. Not, not. So, but here's the thing. I just expected there's someone else sitting off screen that's his name's Abhijit Dan. So, not his last name. <laughs> just Kidda. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kidda. Yeah. So, my point is this. You said um, for for people who um, who are not from an Indian background, mm. you know, there's something missing. Yeah. I would say they're not playing it correctly. Right. It's it's not some ephemeral, ethereal like mm. they haven't absorbed the soul of this. Or I would say they're just not playing it. Like if if you teach me a word in Punjabi, yeah, and I mispronounce it, then yeah. I'm. Not it's not. Word. It's not that I haven't absorbed the soul of Punjabiness. Yeah, it's that I haven't learned to say it properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if it's something to do with the because with Ustad and Nikhil students and their lineage and that kind of umbrella. Mm. it's that music seems to deliver for me. Like when I listen to mm. all of the students that kind of fit under that umbrella, mm. I, I I cannot have that kind of complaint or anything like that. So I'm wondering if it's also to do with the teaching process that, Could uh, be. you know, being a bit more particular about what you were saying, you know, how do you say that? Uh -huh. Or if you have a particular phrase, the, the exact phraseology and the intonation, all that kind of stuff uh -huh. was, you know, we'll get into that as we go along, but you're learning with the style of the Ikhbar concept, you know, was he particularly focused on that? You get the phrase exactly as I did. Um, well, so uh, I need to say that I I, I did learn with Ali Akbar Khan Sahib, um, but I also learned a lot with his disciples and his um, uh, sons, um, uh, Ashish Khan Sahib, uh, Alam Khan, Sri Alam Khan, uh, as well as his disciples, uh, George Ruckert, Dr. George Ruckert. Uh, James Pomerantz, and so I I did learn with Kansa, but I it was kind of a community. You know, they say it takes a community to raise a child. Well, I say it takes a it, or it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to raise a musician too. Um, so I I, I want to be um, be very forthright about that. Um, Kansa was very particular. Um, uh, there was one there was one class where he was teaching an ornament, and he had me like he was going around the room having each of us play it and when he got to me he stopped on me and he just had me play it over and over and over for what seemed like forever and he was not happy and uh, we know how that feels like and we know exactly we know exactly how that feels yeah like, it feels terrible <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the class i i, I apologized <laughs> and i was like oh Kansab, i'm so sorry and yeah. he was very he was like you know Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I interject. We, with our teacher, Shantanu Bhattacharya, we've been learning for him, with him since 2012 or something like that. But as we were, Basant Mukhari or Malkans, one of the two, for what? When, for when you, when the give up. your incident happened, the give up, 
that was uh, no it was just like a combination of things so we were doing basant mukari and malkons i think that day it was basant mukari and Mal- like we were doing mm-hmm. we kind of i don't know what we I love basant mukari we were just listening to it on the drive Basant-Mukari, down here yeah right yeah so we we were doing one or the other i can't remember um i think we did vilambath and basant mukari and then we had a break and then we had a like a, a few bandishes and malkons were working anyways but that was that kind of day where it was yeah. just like no you're not getting it uh huh and i don't care if you're not getting it uh-huh. you're going to keep doing it yeah until you get it well so um this is a really interesting point um uh you know i think how can i say this um so as not to offend people <laughs> <laughs> um i think a really good teacher yeah will understand what the mistake that's happening in the ch- in the student is and how the teacher has to be as creative and the teacher should be working as hard as the student well, you know yeah. to convey that information and if it's just like i'm playing this and you're not getting it what's wrong with you yeah and then i'd say the teacher is is not really doing their job you know yeah um so that i think <laughs> i'm sorry huh? no 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 there's so many stories that come to mind right like that day when when we were doing that i'm not saying your teacher no, was no, doing no. that no no i didn't take it that way <laughs> but, but I, i'm saying like the the teacher has to yeah. um has to, to find a way yeah. to what's the mistake like you were teaching me this word yeah if if you really wanted me to say it properly you'd have to find a way to think about what your tongue was doing right. the shape of your mouth and say yeah. no you're doing this wrong like, then, explain it exactly this way yeah and then yeah then i could learn it and yeah. and practice it right yeah. so a, a music teacher has to do the same thing mm. but what, you know like well i'll finish what just so that thought doesn't is that story is not kind of left in the <laughs> yeah, please. but basically in the brief was you want to shame pretty much oh, yes yeah. i want to publicly shame this <laughs> yeah. what i want to do cuz i had a good time that day yeah But basically, Indabrit was mute for two days. He didn't speak for two. I was like, "Dude, like you're right. We we'll, what happened? We'll move for." He was just that, like, depressed from that day. It was like Aww. two, three hours of Poor just. Guy. And and the thing was, it was just. Usually, it's kind of spread out. You know, it's like okay, you get smashed a little bit, you get smashed a little bit. You know, everyone gets their share of you know. Yeah. Smash. <laughs> But that day it was just like. It was so brutal. And for two days this guy just did not talk. I, I was like, let's go eat, let's do this. He's like, no, no, my life is finished. I'm not singing anymore. He was scribbling on this piece of like his book. He just turned it to the back and he's sitting there with a the pen, yes. not holding it. No, he's holding it like this just going. Yeah. He's just scribbling. Yeah. Well, I like, did. It's all right. Okay. Yeah. But, but but that aside, like you know this what you said that the, I was kind of hinting at that earlier, maybe you know with Asadi for concern and his the community that you said that it must have been something because the students that come out of that school or most of that they, they have those qualities but yeah. there's there's well he he invested a lot of time, time. into i mean like kansab taught four hours a day yeah every day wow. monday through thursday and then he would do his concerts on the weekend so i mean that's a for a musician of his caliber i can't think of another uh you know it, at least an instrumentalist really who who devoted that much time to teaching mm. you know well, what do you think of the stories like because we hear these stories all the time where it's like you know you're learning from your teacher and the teacher tells stories about either their, their teachers or their experiences where it's like you know back in the day you would just expect it to pick it up yeah and i've heard this story about study for concept three before. times have you heard the the three times thing the three time rule yeah so, so if you, you don't get it you don't. If, if you don't get it after three times then you're not ready for it then you're not ready for it yeah yeah well 
I had this. I know. I'm gonna run this story by you. All right. Uh, Bolo. <laughs> <laughs> the story is that Osali Pekansa is playing in Kolkata, and I don't know what Dragina he's playing, and um, his son's playing with him. So I should come. I should come. And uh, they're playing a certain rag, and uh, Usad Ashish Khan, he's playing it, and he, uh, Usad Ibrahim at one point gets a bit frustrated at, I don't know if it was Ashish Khan. I think, I think I've heard this story. You've heard this story? Okay. But, but well, well, yeah. The, I, I mean, the thing is, the I'm so way. removed from the instrumental world that these stories kind of make their way through. And then, so, as an example, like, you should pick up on these quickly, whatever. Uh-huh. But Usad Ibrahim just stops the recital and goes, you know, in our day he's using kind of uh, colourful language and just saying that we didn't have this opportunity that these guys um, I'm not going to use because I I wasn't there so I don't know what language he's using but he was just basically like we're going to change the rag this is not working we're going to go to something that these guys can follow and he changed the rag and he moved forward but You've heard this story? Yeah. Can you verify the story? <laughs> I, I wasn't there, but I've, I've heard the same story. But uh, I'll say that um, um, hazing is a part of the upbringing of a musician in this tradition. Well, yeah. um, and, I, I, you know, being someone with a foot in each world, I see the benefit. I mean, in, in the West, particularly in America, students are kind of coddled. You know, they're kind of like... Oh, we have to encourage him and support him, and you know, we, we can't be too mean. We have to like, we don't can't be critical. And I think it, this can be, it can be overdone. You know, like sometimes a student needs a good swift kick in the butt. Yeah, um, this is uh, this is this is a new documentary on Netflix. Yeah, it's called American Made, and it's about the I think Chrysler or one of the one of the big factories that shut down in two thousand and eight uh-huh. in America, and. Uh, this Chinese billionaire comes in. This is the story, right? It's on Netflix. Chinese billionaire comes in and the guy restarts the factory in 2016. Uh-huh. And they're trying to get the American workers to be as efficient as the Chinese workers back in back in China. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be interesting. And, and the supervisor is just like, the Chinese and their children, they encourage them so much. They just don't know how to work. Uh-huh. They're like, they just keep telling them, you know, we that you're good, uh-huh. that we'll get there. And he's like, no. In Chinese culture, we need to just tell them that they're crap, that they're kicking the butt, and get them to <laughs> what you tell you the story. I think, it reminds me of that way. It's just yeah. like that. It's just like you know, you gotta. It's it's a bit of a balance, but you always you have. I don't know. It feels like the teachers always. You're. It's a good place to be when you're always chasing. Where it's like, you you always feel like you're on loose ground. Where it's like, okay, no, no, I gotta work on that. Yeah, no, yeah, I gotta yeah. work on that. As soon, never satisfied. Exactly, and your. Te- I feel like your teachers shouldn't. If your teacher's making you feel like you've got it. Yeah. Then maybe you're not in the right right place where it's well, kind of like Kansab he would only be really supportive to the people who didn't take it seriously. Really? So like <laughs> the people right. who were in the back just kind of that's as pretty, a Yeah. That's not then he would say like, "Oh, very nice. You're you're doing good." And then he would walk past all of us in the front row and be like, "Very bad." Said yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you in first. He would try to motivate us, you know? Yeah. And the way I I always took it as a compliment it, that he like he was pushing us. You know, um, no, I think you can go too far with both approaches. Um, and uh, actually, I, for a long time, I remembered, I misremembered that the nicest thing that Constable ever said to me was he walked by me after class one day and he was like, you're doing okay. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> at the time I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I made it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 
And so I always thought that, that but then I, I was having, uh, I, I met another student at the college uh, and he reminded me that Kansab one class said that I was talented. And the th here's the thing, I forgot about that, but he remembered. <laughs> yeah, you should get that date tattooed on you. Yeah, right? Yeah. right? So like, I guess like in retrospect, after hearing this, because this was not that long ago that he, this was uh, Arjun Bruma, who's a very talented sitar player at Aliakor College. Um, I, I remembered that Kansab, he did kind of encourage us a little bit, um, but he was very careful about it. I mean, you have to also keep in mind his upbringing. Like his father was so strict with him. I mean, yeah. Well, I, I want to dig into that because I feel like that's really kind of interesting in terms of uh, the learning process. But before we go into that, do you think what I was saying earlier with the, you know, the older generations and those examples that are kind of handed out willingly now where it's like, you should have picked it up back in the day, they just pick it up as opposed to what, what you were saying earlier that it's the teacher should be working as hard as the student to pinpoint what the issue is. Yeah. In talented students, you know, then uh -huh. the students are investing and the so teachers should invest back to pinpoint and exactly work with the student to fix that particular thing. Or was well, it more like, if you're not getting it, go home, pack up, go home? Well, so, <clears throat> I mean, if we use it, music to me uh, functions, it has it, the way we learn music, the way we process music is very similar to language. And it's also very similar to athletics, the way we, we learn it and, and study it. So if we use the language analogy, if, um, um, okay, so you were born and raised in North India, right? And you moved to Australia when you were eight, you said, yeah. right? So when I hear you speak, you sound Australian to me. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not Australian, so yeah. I'm not a connoisseur of Australian accents. Yeah. But to me as an American, yeah. you sound Australian. Mm. Um, so this, I'm willing to bet that no one like took you through and explained the Australian accent to you one thing at a time. But you were able to pick it up at because you know you were young enough, you were malleable enough, and you managed to pick it up. Um, so when we learn our mother tongue or a second language, you know, from a young enough age, um, we're able to do it on an unconscious level. Human beings are sort of uh, we've evolved to be sensitive to language and sound in that way, um, and to kind of we learn how to frame language with our mouths with our you know chests in that way and that kind of sets us up for the rest of our lives um, but it is entirely possible for somebody 30 years old to learn another language and speak it with a spot-on accent it's just that they have to learn they have to devote more conscious energy to it than a five-year-old would have they have to be a little bit more um, direct and analytical in their approach because that particular time of their life has passed. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So um, when I'm saying like the teacher has to like explain exactly what the musician, um, you know, what, what the student is struggling with, I think that's, um, I, I also need to say that my teachers never did that with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I think that's something that, that's uniquely beneficial for people who learn the music later. And that doesn't mean only non-Indians, because a lot of Indian students that I teach, I have a lot of South Asian students, um, they they also struggle with the pronunciation, the quote-unquote pronunciation of the of the musical phrases, yeah. you know, like whether the note is bent this way or curved this way, or if it has ondolin in this particular way. Um, 
all this stuff is no one's born knowing this stuff. Everybody learns it. Yeah. And so if you learn it when you're younger, you can learn it kind of unconsciously. If you learn it when you're older, you have to learn it a little bit more consciously. I think that's the main difference. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's totally doable. Mm. Um, no, that's really because that, that's when you, when you kind of go to go to India and go to musical families and all that kind of stuff. You see that where the kids are, kids are singing and playing, and something that, for example, I would I would have to listen to, and I'm kind of deconstructing it completely because I'm learning at a, at a later age. Yeah. Where you know exactly this phrase is getting lifted up from here, and then it's this is the end note, but this is this is what's happening in the middle. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. And then then I have to sit down and try to work on that exact phrase. Uh-huh. A kid that's brought up in it, like my Guruji's daughter, and and their kind of age group, the kids that are brought up in it, they just listen to it. Yes. And it just feels like they that process is way quicker. But there's a positive and a negative for each of these approaches because the people who are who like if you ask me to explain something about English grammar to you, I might not be able to because it's I don't even think about it. It's totally unconscious. Mm-hmm. Whereas someone who has learned English as a second language, yeah, they can explain how well, it works and they've analyzed it and yeah. so when you're like if if someone such as yourself or i mean even me i I learned hindustani music i started when i was about 18 so i was kind of like right at the tail end of the of my youth <laughs> like really um um the the skills that you'll gain from having to deconstruct it and analyze it will serve you well for the rest of your life because you're learning how to think about it you're learning how to break it apart mm-hmm. so you could I wouldn't say that one is a positive and one's a one's a negative. There's positives and negatives for both approaches, right? Being just kind of able to do it unconsciously, um, which I think anyone will get to that level eventually, right? Like, yeah. um, like after you've mastered a language to a certain point, you know, uh, you're able to think about it unconsciously. I remember when I was living in Calcutta, I had one day. I'm I'm not fluent in Bangla at any stretch by any stretch of the imagination, but I remember one day, I had I dreamt in Bangla. What? And to, and to me, that was like, it was like okay, now like I've reached a new yeah level of like my learning of this language because I could like speak it in my dream. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so uh, I the, think the radio was on. Huh? All, the, all, the all the radio was on. Radio was on. All the radio was on. <laughs> in the background, yeah. Well. yeah. 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 And then I, no, I was the one talking. It's a big level to jump. Yeah. I was the yeah. one yeah. talking in yeah. the dream, though. Yeah, but you just yeah. made it into like, this supernatural experience. Yeah. Yeah. It was just the radio going on. <laughs> but, your, but your point is true in the sense that we have seen people uh, who can reproduce, who are naturally talented, who can reproduce things by sound, mm-hmm. but not by knowledge. And yeah. then yeah. when given the so knowledge, you ask them, what are you doing? Tell me what you're doing. And they stumble mm. because they can't explain it. They yeah. can do it, but they can't explain it. Yeah. And the biggest kind of place that that becomes apparent is if they have to do a presentation mm-hmm. where it's not, uh, you know, this is the start. And then you have these improvisations in the bandish, these dance, these whatever the highs and dugans and whatever. Yeah. And this, when it has to be like a, you know, this is the velambit that you're singing, velambit mm-hmm. composition, go. <laughs> That's when you realize, yeah, okay, okay. You know, if they don't know how they haven't thought about Bharat or how I should unfold the rag or whatever, then, then that doesn't apply anymore. You know, if you've been brought up with it or not, mm-hmm. it's about you have to start thinking. And I think that's what you're saying, you know, I think it's really, really kind of resonates as well. It's true. Where if you haven't thought about it, mm-hmm. when it comes to that level, you won't be able to, to deliver. And I think, um, you know, there, there's, there's positives and negatives to both approaches. Um, I've 
I've thought about it a lot. So that's the perspective that I'm coming from a more analytical approach. Um, I think uh, if you're able to analyze it and think about why things happen and how things work and how a phrase is done or like how a phrase is pronounced in this rog versus that rog, how we sculpt the phrase to make it sound like Bhagashri or make it sound like, uh, you know, coffee, coffee, right? Like the, the ga in Bhagashri is different from the ga in, in coffee. And that's different from the ga in pilu, for example, or tori, or darwari, right? They're all they're all a little different. And if you're able to to think about it and analyze it and question it, then I think you're able to um, maybe deconstruct things and reconstruct them, you know, in in a certain way, rather than just reproduce. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head with with this, you know, with. The, I think the language exp, uh, explanation really rings true. What were you going to say about the athletics? Yeah, so I when I'm when I teach, I use a lot of athletics metaphors yeah. and uh, strategies because the way that we. So it, this is one of the things I love about music. Is music to me is the sum total of humanity, right? Everything that we are as people can be uh, found in music. So music is uh, athletic, right? You have to be tayari. You have to be like able to do you know the physical part of music right whether it's with your voice or your fingers or you know your your mouth if you're a, a wind player or whatever so it's it's athletic it's intellectual right it's emotional it's um uh, conceptual it's philosophical you know all, everything that we are as as people there's historical knowledge there's um you know cultural knowledge all of these different elements of humanity these different knowledge kind of uh forms that we have are is present in music so um athletics and body knowledge is hugely important for music because your body is your instrument whether you're playing sitar or singing or shenai or trombone or whatever your body is your true instrument right so learning how to control your breath learning how to control the tiny muscles in your voice or your fingers um learning how to hear the sound in your head, in your mind, before you produce it, right? This is a huge thing. Um, so, um, like, one of the... Uh, I'll give you a, a, a definite answer, um, because this is a huge... I could talk for, like, two hours oh, just on, on, on this. Yeah, because it's, it's hugely um, important. Um, so, one of the things that I do with my students... there. Uh, so, I've, I, I play golf. I... Not recently, unfortunately, but I used to play golf a lot. And I was pretty good. I was like a scratch golfer for, for a few years. Yeah, that's for you. That was for you. Yeah, that was a cheat for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just explain it. Because people we listen to this, we just go, like, what the hell are we laughing at? There's a, there's a sports ground behind my house, and everyone just cheered when, 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 when I said, said I was a scratch golfer. Everyone's like, yeah, you're a golfer. Um, so I, I used to be quite good, but... Um, <clears throat> there are uh, two ways. Like if you look at long drive competitions, uh, people who just, they're not trying to like get the ball in the hole or get a low score. They're just trying to hit the ball as far as they can, right? So this could be analogous to learning how to play faster, whatever you're doing. Um, there are two ways that they'll go about learning how to hit the ball faster or swing the club faster because faster club, further ball, right? There's something called overspeed training and something called underspeed training. So under speed training is if they, you put a weight 
on the club. Just like in baseball, they'll put like a donut on the on the bat. I assume in cricket they do the same thing, right? There's a weight that you put on the bat and it makes it heavier so that when you swing it, it feels heavier. And when you take it off, it feels lighter and you can swing it faster. So this is under speed training because you're you're making it heavier and going slower. End result being that it, when you take it off, it's lighter and you can go faster. The other thing is called overspeed training. And this I find super interesting. What, uh, what some long drive people will do is that instead of swinging their club, they'll just take a shaft and maybe put a couple of uh, coins taped around the bottom so it's lighter. And they'll swing the club faster than they normally could swing the club. And what this does is it tricks their body into moving faster than your body thinks it's capable of moving. And what's, what's interesting is when they put, when they pick up the original club, it's like two or three miles an hour faster. So just by swinging this light thing and moving faster than, than they're used to moving, they gain club head speed with their club, right? So this is something that I do with my students a lot. I, I call it sprints. So it, let's say you're trying to play, you know, um, a, a certain bowl or, a, you know, a certain phrase and you're struggling to get it at a certain speed. You know, usually when you're practicing it like that, you're practicing it in a sustained way. If you're practicing a, a you know, a palter or something, you're keeping it going, right? You're never going to be able to run your maximum speed forever, right? You're going to run your maximum speed for a sprint for 100 yards, for 100 meters or whatever it is, right? So instead of trying to uh, keep this this palta, this alamkar, this whatever, this bowl going for five minutes at maximum speed, just do it once. Do it once as fast as you can. It'll probably be like 30% faster than you can keep it going sustained, right? And then what you do is, okay, you can do it once at that speed. Now try to do it twice. So do it, try to get your maximum, your one-time maximum. I also uh, go to the gym. I do uh, weight training. I can, I can totally I see what you're... to that. Yeah, it's like yeah. one rep PR. Yeah, exactly. It's one rep maxes. Yeah, you do, That's you exactly do, what it is. Yeah, yeah. I was just about to say, I don't go to the gym much, but I know that one. I can't the, tell. You, you do the... You can't tell, right? <laughs> well, he could be a power <laughs> lifter. You wouldn't know. That's, That's right. He could be like lifting whatever. You, you know the difference between so, power, so. power lifters and bodybuilders? Bodybuilders have six backs. Power lifters have kegs. Kegs, pretty much. But that is a gym philosophy that you uh, that you do the yeah, yeah. you do the one rep. You do it. You exactly. do a higher amount that you can do so that when you do the one rep, it's well. It's because you're you're building the strength in a different way. So there are many different ways to be strong, right? There's endurance and there's just flat out strength. So building your one rep maximum is the way to just increase your your just brute strength, right? So if you can increase your one rep max for Palta, like how fast can you play this phrase once? You know, increase that until you get it as, as fast as you can. It's, it's a gray area because it'll start to fall apart, right? You'll be able to do it, but it won't be clean, right? So you just kind of keep track of that. Then try to do it twice. Okay, you, it might come down by like 3%, right? Then try to do it four times. Okay, it might come down by 5%, okay? Now go back to your one rep max bump it back up again okay then bring it down to your sustained practice and i'm not talking about just doing this once or twice do it for like five minutes or something right these sprints mm. bring it down to where you were practicing it sustained before and i guarantee you it'll feel easy wow. because this is this is over speed training you're playing it faster than you think you're able to your body is now used to moving faster than it was before and when you get back to this this place where you were stuck before your mind, your your muscles are used to moving faster. That sustained speed is going to feel slow by comparison. Yeah. 
So by, by kind of shoving the upper limit and then bringing up the sustain speed, you're able to move everything up. So this is a way that I've explored um, athletics with music. You know, another th great thing about, uh, about, I've been going to the gym now for about four years. And one of the things I love is the mind muscle connection, right? Because if you just do go through the, uh, the motions, you're not going to get the, the benefit. You really have to connect with the muscle that's supposed to be doing the work. And this is exactly about how we play with music, you know, how to be efficient, really connecting with what, what your hands, what your body is supposed to be doing. You know, not just unconsciously, but really connecting with it on a deep visceral level, you know? No, that's super interesting. And the thing is, like, like when we do, when we do paltadeas and, you know, the way the way I've learned and the way Indipri learned, we have a few kind of tempo ranges mm. that we work on. Like, this is this is the, if you have, like, thinking kind of paltas, mm. where it's like, you know, you're thinking about mathematical kind of combinations and stuff like that, there's a certain layer, like, beats per minute, mm. 30, 30, 40 beats per minute, that's the range that we have where you work in this speed. Um, not 30, 40 beats per minute, I'm saying the range. It's it's more like 180 to 190 to, to 210, something like that. We work on that. But if you're working on kind of the, the Tayari kind of polters, like, mm -hmm. you know, the side 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 something like mm -hmm. that, simple where it's like your brain can almost switch off. You're mm -hmm. just working on... Or the, only, the only thing your brain's thinking of is the tone. Mm -hmm. Everything else switched off. You're not thinking about the mats or anything like that. Mm -hmm. That's a different range. You kind of work much slower, and then we just jump straight to the dugun for that so mm. you, if you're if you're sitting at 30 30 minutes for a palta for example 25 minutes you work at 120 bpm mm. oh sorry more like once 130 or 140 something like that for mm. vocal and then the last five minutes you just go boom straight to 280 mm. and then when you come back to like a 200 mm. it just feels like you're cruising yeah everything is so much so perspective you know? it's all perspective and it's like you just you see everything come so much. It's as if it's as if you're singing in slow motion now, or playing yes. in slow motion. Yeah, where it's exactly. like you just see all the architecture that you're about to f you formulate. Yeah. It's already almost there. You see everything coming in slow mo. It's just like like a yeah. movie. Is like the punches coming slowly. <laughs> I got this. You just move that way. You know that's what. Yeah. And I think that happens. And the other thing Absolutely. with athletics is like, like, I feel like it's so objective. Mm. Where in athletics, it's kind of like if you. If you're good at this, you're good at this. Uh -huh. If you're not good at this, you're not good at this. And I feel like that's disappearing from music a little bit, where it's kind of turning into like... How do you think? Let me give you the background. I'll give you the background. <laughs> His background is UFC, right? He's like one guy versus another guy. The I, other I, guy beats I, up yeah. the other guy. Okay. That guy's better. Yeah. Right? Most of the time. So what does that mean in the context of music? What he wants to <laughs> outline here, and you can tell me if I was wrong, he's saying at what point do we go or at what point does, a, does someone listening to someone go, all right, you're just not good. You know, like you, you, we, you're you not know, a musician. Gonna... You're just not. Like, where do we draw the line and say, okay, you're just not a good musician? Because things are becoming so subjective, right? Where it's like, it's it's kind of. Um... There is so much to unpack. In yeah. That, <laughs> right yeah. There's well, so much. Well, the, the thing is, I, what I'm seeing more and more in my own experience, it's been it's becoming more and more like, uh, you know, music is it, it is it is subjective in that sense. Uh -huh. But in in Hindustani music. There's like a line there, like an objective kind of line where mm. it's, are you playing the bandish or are you not playing the bandish? Mm. Uh, 
Are you playing in Sur? Are you not playing in Sur? Are you playing the Ga of Pilu or Bageshwari or Kafi or Bageshwari? Kind of, what are you mm. playing the Ga? These are objective kind of boundaries mm. that are kind of instilled through Talim generation by generation. But this Whereas is just kind of turning into like, this is how I play Kafi Ganara. <laughs> Where it's like, cool, but that just sounds exactly like you have a, you're just playing oh, Bageshwari, but you're changing yes. this. You know what I mean? Like, whereas I athletics know. is like... Yes, well, yeah. I mean, whoever whoever finishes the race first is the winner right yeah it's a clear-cut thing music is not like that it's subjective and thank god because if that's what music was if it was like the person who plays the tons the fastest yeah. is the best musician in the world i i wouldn't be a musician that's exactly why i didn't take the tan example uh-huh. that's exactly why i took the the you know the Komal guy example or something uh-huh. like, where you're looking at phraseology but okay so so would Let's let's unpack part of what you were saying yeah. there, right? What do you say then to, to the fact that um, traditions will explore the same rock different ways? Yeah. Like music is not objective; it is subjective, yeah. and there is kind of a subjective sphere of acceptability, right? So if I play Bageshri, mm. but I play Gamaresa, yeah, we this know. is a this is a Connor up phrase, right? Yeah. I was taught we don't do that. Right, we play. If we want to do that, then there's another rag called Bagashri Kanra, and we play that right, which is a whole different rag. It's more than just playing Kamareza in, in Bagashri. But there are quite a few musicians who do play or sing Gamareza in Bagashri, and maybe some people grumble about it. Some people don't. <laughs> he grumbles. He grumbles. But so there's a sphere of acceptability, <clears throat> right? Yeah. Um, or um, like how to play the the Taivat in in Darbari. Like yeah. there's there's a certain sphere of acceptability. Yeah, but you see that the, what we're talking about is like the objective kind of levels up here. You know, like we we have if we're playing Darbari, mm-hmm. no one's gonna play Darbari with the Shudga. Or a Tigrama. You know, it's not going to happen, right? It sounds interesting. Uh, <laughs> it <sounds laughs> but it, we're, we're getting into, this is the objective level. You've gotten to that objective level. And now we're talk, We're discussing. Like, we're, okay, yeah. you've gone to some level. Now It's a high-level discussion. Yeah. It's a high-level discussion. Whereas I feel like that's starting to happen at a much lower level now. Where it's just kind of like, that subjectivity or that concept of subjectivity is seeping so far down that it's actually affecting the standard of it's the music. It's becoming more socialist. It's But you get what I'm trying to say? That's, I understand what you're saying. I do agree. Well, music I, is subjective. Absolutely. But uh, there is a level to where that kind of subjectivity does come in. Hmm. But there is a level that makes that is objectively kind of this is objectively yeah. uh, not a rug. You're going in and out. This is you know this is not something that we should we should encourage. But it's not clear where you draw that line. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, I, yeah, I can it, see that. It's kind of a gray area. Like yeah. if you it's if you if you play the shudga in Darbari, it's not acceptable. But there is a shudga in Darbari, mm. right? Yeah, yeah, I see what you, you mean. You know what I mean? Like I there's see. there's one ornament where you should not hear the shudga, but it is there. And it's hidden in in this ornament. Yeah, but see, you've just jumped straight to that high level. You've, you're taking a high level well, example. But what I'm saying is, it's not a clear distinction between like there is no shudga in in Darbari and there is a shudga. Yeah. There, it's somewhere in between. It's a gray area. Yeah. And so, but I think what you're what you're really trying to uh, what what you're trying to convey to me is is that um, so much modern music has become about 
uh, technical proficiency and not like in-depth knowledge of the tradition. And I, a lot of people have voiced this and I, I understand it and I agree. Um, but I would say it's more prevalent in the instrumental side of things. Uh, there are quite a lot of really excellent singers. Uh, and uh, I, I enjoy listening to modern singers, especially Pandit Ulhas Kashalkarji, Pandit Venkatesh Kumarji. They're amazing, you know, and there are, uh, I mean, I just named two, but there are, there are lots of great singers. And there are also lots of great instrumentalists. I, I, I didn't mention before, but uh, another musician who I'm learning with now for like the last eight years, I think, is uh, Pandit Tejendra Majumdarji. Uh, he has an amazing talim in these things. So I think that this kind of learning, in-depth learning, it does exist on the high level uh, and it is there in the modern world. It's just that, you know, everyone's at a different level and there, there are some people who have mastered these things up to this point and some people who are at this point. And the real problem is that the average listener slash average organizer <laughs> doesn't they're not able to uh, discern the difference yeah. um, so that, uh, you know, it's, and it's a confusing thing because, you know, does one person get to decide who is acceptable and who doesn't? Yeah. No, it's a communal thing. Yeah. No, you're right. We were having this discussion. My, my Guruji has just left. He was here and he just left last week and he mentioned this. I don't think you were, you were, you were here when you were saying this, but he said something and I was like, no, no, I don't know. He, he said that, there is so much discussion about rags. The he, he said Ravi Shankarji had, had postulated this. I'm not sure if he did. Mm. But he, he quoted Ravi Shankarji. He said that there was a discussion about like an Indian board for rags or something like that. Where they should dictate what rags should be. So there's no kind of room for... And I, I, I you know the argument that you're making to me? Mm. This exact argument I was making to him. I was saying, well, each tradition has a liberty to kind of... Uh, carry on their way of exploring drugs and looking at drugs and all that kind of stuff. Whereas he was kind of very stern about, no, 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 but Bageshri is Bageshri, it's Bageshri. The Indian board of drugs should, should do that. And in, in Sikh music, we've had this where in the early, in the early 90s, they, like a board was created that kind of just established certain drugs in yeah. the Sikh tradition. Yeah. And it was, you know, detrimental to, to our music. It was... Mm. It, Interesting. It, it, like we just we, we haven't been able to bounce back, and I don't see how we'll be able to bounce back. Like, mm -hmm. If I'm being honest, so I was speaking from that kind of background, saying to him, "Look, like that's just not gonna, it's not a good idea." Yeah. But he was saying that that we that there should be some sort of a universal. You know, this is such a, a such a huge topic. We could talk about this for for hours. But you know, I, I will say that um, uh, prior to the recording era, era, era. Uh, <laughs> However you say it. Uh, prior to the recording era, uh, ragas did change quite a bit. And there are... Um, uh, I've, I've read things about how uh, old versions of Bihag didn't have Tidra Madhyam. And, uh, you know, ragas do have changed and evolved over time. Um, and since the recording era, things have kind of been frozen. Now we can go and listen to masters like Pandit Ravi Shankarji, Ustad Amir Khan Saab, these, these like stalwarts of the tradition. And we can hear how they did it. And that's like the gold standard. So now the evolution of the ragas has sort of been frozen, mm. right? It's, it's there. So we do kind of have it. But I, 
you know, Hindustani music occupies this really interesting place, which is in between something sacred and kind of venerable and also an artistic tradition. And if you're doing something sacred and venerable, then you have to keep it sacred and, you know, you don't want it to change, right? Mm -hmm. You want it to be the way it is. But if you're playing art or, or making art, rather, um, then you have to have a sort of freedom of expression, you know, and Hindustani music occupies this really interesting position where it's both. And so um, there's this really funny thing that happens where like before you're established, everything you do is under scrutiny and questioned. And once you're accepted as a master, then you could you could do crazy things with the rog. And people will praise it as genius. Well, yeah, how do you view practice and and i want to get into like more of I you know people just say you should do 16 hours practice a day that kind of stuff people make blanket statements and a lot of the times they just say that and they just kind of want to they don't give any practical advice mm. to people that have a sitar in their hand or any instrument in their house sitting for vocal it's not practical advice mm -hmm. uh, in terms of practicality of of riyaz and making time for riyaz and once you make time like you, you know I do the X, Y, Z. Now I have two hours a day I can take out. Mm -hmm. How do you manage your time for the hours? Mm -hmm. And what do you prioritize? And what do you find effective? And what do you find ineffective? And all that kind of stuff. Well, that's you, another huge... That's uh, exactly what we hear from my friend. I'm going to pick your brain on this. Um, well, uh, I think broadly speaking, um, there, are, there are a few major topics in music that you need to explore as a as a student of music there's the technical side of it right which is you know just being able to do the stuff playing in rhythm playing in tune the the physical mechanics of the instrument whatever then you have the aesthetic part of it which is harder to uh, explore but still needs to be explored that's usually done through listening and concert attendance concert attendance for <laughs> students <laughs> um and uh, the last is uh, the emotional and spiritual part of it, which, again, is kind of usually done away from the instrument. Um, that's kind of your, your your spirit, you know, like how you have to live your life. I mean, if you just practice in a room, then like what, what are you bringing to the what experiences are coloring your your music? But in terms of um, uh, like the actual how like how you're going to practice. Uh, I would say um, it's great to touch on, you should, I mean, for sitar, so, so much of the of the instrument itself is an obstacle. The instrument is hard to play. And the mechanics of music itself, being able to play in tune and in rhythm, is really hard. Uh, so that's going to be kind of the bulk of, of your time, really. I would say more than half of your time should be um, learning to play in rhythm. I'd say... Uh, most students struggle with rhythm much more than sur, than, than playing in tune. Um, and it's, it's harder, it's, it's, it's uh, ineffable, right? You, it's, it's abstract. Rhythm itself is abstract. I mean, 
time like what is time anyway we, we don't even really know what time is you know einstein says uh, time exists so that everything doesn't happen all at once right but it, it time itself can be stretched so like you know it's it's a very difficult abstract thing and i think most students struggle with t with rhythm uh more than they realize actually i've realized this with my students and with myself you know whenever you think you're playing in rhythm you you've just kind of reached the sensitivity of your uh, of, of the maximum sensitivity of your rhythm you can always get more precise um so um being able to play in rhythm in tune uh, pushing yourself technically, like at some point every day, you need to be expanding your technical ability. So if you're not pushing yourself technically, like I have a bunch of students who um, they would practice something and they would say, yeah, I'm practicing it just like you said, but I'm not getting any better. And I would say, okay, well, show me how you're practicing it. And they're playing it at like a really, really medium speed. And I'll say like, yeah, okay, you can play it. You've learned it, but now you're not practicing it now. Now you're just repeating it like now is the time where you like get it faster get it faster you know sculpt it get it more uh refined work on the tone production work on the balance uh the the dynamics you know the volume all these things um speed is kind of the the it's a symptom of mastery but it's not the end result right um but speed is very helpful because if you can play something at a million miles an hour, then if I ask you to play it at a hundred miles an hour, it's really easy. And when things are easy, then you can make them more beautiful. So, uh, you know, it's really great to be able to play super, super fast, but then choose not to, right? Have the ability. Um, so, um, uh, I would say for, you know, and there's no substitute for having a good teacher who can really uh, explain explain things show you what to practice and analyze where you are in your music and what you need to be working on because uh, i would say the first 10 years of training for a musician are just learning how to practice you know just mm -hmm. learning uh, to have that inner uh kind of voice it's kind of the inner guru that that's analyzing what you uh what's going right what's going wrong and how to work on it that's like 10 years of work right there. Yeah. You know, and then of course the next, the next stage after that is once you build up this super critical inner voice is when you perform, then you have to turn it off. Uh, and that's, that's the hard part. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like in terms of like digging a bit more into the practical side of practice, right? Mm. You sit down with your sitar, you've opened the case, you pull it out. Now it's in your hands. Mm. Um, what things are you so you, one thing that you said is you have to push your technical ability every single day every single day you know i think that's great practical advice what something like what would you sit would say one for example something that i've noticed realized more recently is that in reals for me i can't look at the time mm. it has to be about the subject matter i can't I, for example if i do something for three hours mm -hmm. i can't be happy about the three hours because i haven't got it it's but not about time. It, it's exactly. Not, it's not but, about you time. know, it, it's it, we are taught about time. You know, we, when you started, when you, when we started chatting, you had mentioned the eight hours a day kind of thing. That's the standard discussion about hours. It has has kind of revolved around time now. But it will only concept did 
how many hours? What's, what's 35 a, hours a day. <laughs> exactly my point. Yes. But what, what I've come to realize, it's not about time anymore. It's more like uh, you, you've got this task at hand. Mm-hmm. You may have prescribed that task to yourself, yeah. you know, by your own kind of intuition, or you have something that you have to complete. That is this particular thaan or this particular phrase, this bandish at this level, whatever it is. Now, if that takes you eight hours to do, the, the point isn't the eight hours. It's actually 45 minutes to do. The point isn't the 45 minutes. Right. The point is that you, you have to sit down with a task every time. It's not just something that you just sit down with, with nothing to do. You have to have something to do and a task mm-hmm. to kind of overcome or difficulty or an obstacle to overcome. And you sit down and you're like, this is the part I'm going to do. Or this, this is the technical ability that I'm trying to develop or something mm-hmm. like that, you know? Yeah. So, um, well, it, like you said, uh, the the time thing is confusing and um, kind of misleading. Uh, you know, just because you practice for ten hours doesn't mean you accomplished anything. Um, it's how you spend your time. And I would say, look, if you want to play ten hours a day, then go do it. But if you can't accomplish what you want to accomplish in three to five hours a day of like practice, then you're not practicing properly. You know, and I, when I say three to five hours, I'm talking about if you want to be a performer, right? If you don't want to be a performer, if you're just a hobby musician, then, you know, play whatever you can. Play 20. I would say a half hour a day is what you need to progress, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, even you could you can you can even progress with 15 minutes a day if you break it into five minute chunks and you do super dedicated five minute kind of super superfood sort of practice where you just do one thing for five minutes without stopping, which is actually really hard to do. Yeah. Right. If you were taking one, one alamkar yeah. and you sang it without stopping for yeah. five minutes straight, yeah. Yeah. it's really hard to do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, uh, and so without like checking Facebook and, you know, that's a terrible disease now. Eh? I mean, for, 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 for a, for a, uh, instrumentalist, it's probably less so but for a vocalist. Dude, I, I haven't seen a vocalist in recent history who doesn't do theirs with their phone. Everyone's singing with a phone in their hand. I'm not joking right now. Like even yeah. teaching, learning, everything. And it's just like, it's just like this. <laughs> Dude, it's like teachers. You're the first guy I saw do that. I actually didn't know people did that until I saw this guy yeah. sitting on Facebook. And he's just like, I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, and I saw that. And I was like, then I started doing it. I was like, and then you just realize how, in, you know, in effect. Yeah, it it's, it's a, it's a really dangerous thing of modern life is the cell phone addiction. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you can't focus for an hour at a time, which is actually really hard, mm. break it into small manageable chunks. Yeah. Like what I, what I did for a while is I got a sand timer, which uh, I, I got the idea with my, my daughter when my daughter was uh, in first grade in kindergarten. She didn't have enough time to finish her lunch. And she couldn't tell time, so like having a watch wouldn't help her. So we got her a 10-minute sand timer so that she could gauge how much time she had left so that she could eat her lunch in the amount of time that she had to eat her lunch in school. And it really helped, right? So I got myself a five-minute sand timer, and I would just you know turn it over, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this, this one thing, this gamaktan or this one thing, without stopping for five minutes. And I'll say, like, after... 90 seconds of playing something without stopping your mind will start to wander mm-hmm. and it it's really good practice just five minutes you know it should be manageable but i guarantee you it's hard yeah you know so um if you can't focus for an hour then break it into into chunks you know do five minutes do 10 minutes mm. and what'll happen is um after you 
like once you get to the five minutes, you're probably going to be pretty deep in that thing and you're going to want to keep going. Yeah. yeah, You know, it's going to turn into 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, very true. Um, One more thing I want to kind of ask you about is, you know, the, the different styles that I play again, this, you're going to, I know what you're going to say, you're going to be like, that's a lot to unpack, but I'm going (laughs) to ask you anyway, you know, you play from the, the Meha Grana. That's what, that's what your style of playing is. Yes. And then, you know, f- famously, the other, the uh, you know, Sabvalak Kansab, and we're talking about speed, Amazing. and I think his name yeah. just comes, you know, when speed comes to, in in question, his name comes kind of first. Well, you know, uh, Ustad Zakir, Zakir Hussain, uh, I heard that he said something, he said something to a friend of mine. He said, speed is an illusion. Uh-huh. And um, the more I think about this, I heard this for the first time about six or seven years ago. Yeah. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, yeah. because I'll listen to a musician and I'll be like, oh my God, what they're playing is so amazingly fast. Right. And then I'll sit down and I'll try to play it. And it's not that fast no. at all. Yeah. And then I'll listen to somebody else and, and I'll think, oh, it's not that fast. Right. It's like, oh, you know, whatever. And I'll sit down to play it and my eyes will get really big. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> so fast. You know, the energy and the clarity and the weight with uh, at which something is delivered affects the speed that we perceive it, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, so this, the actual speed itself is kind of irrelevant, mm. really. Um, Abhijit Pai and I were talking on the way down here that uh, Pandit Nikhil Banerjee said that uh, the thing that he worked on bef- the day of a concert was slowing his hands down. St- that's really interesting to slow them down so that you have your grip so that, you know, everyone's had that experience where you get on stage and you get kind of anxious. And before you know it, you're singing everything or playing everything too fast and you've kind of blasted through the comfortable yeah. speed. And now everything is really frantic and you're like, oh God, how did I that's, get here? So- he's, he's, he's nudging me right now because that happens to me every time. Yeah, it happens when to... I'm, when I'm performing, uh, like... I, I always end up, you know, probably like, because when you're singing with a live tabla, all your yeah. all reals is now with a tabla pro, you know, yeah. it's barely that you sit with a, with a, with a live tabla anymore. So you're very precise about your, your practice layer. Yeah. This is dangerous too, because tabla so players dangerous. don't have beats per minute on their forehead. No, they don't. No, they're not. Sure. <laughs> they, they actually should. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> Go. but, but I, I performed recently and I, I sang a, um, I sang Purvina, then I sang Bageshri. And, I, I was listening back to it, and the Bageshwari I'm singing is so much faster than I, I'm comfortable singing at. Mm. And now it's all happening, right? Uh-huh. But it's not happening anywhere to to what I want want to happen. I don't want that layer. Mm. It's not it's not my kind of musical decision to to be sit there and be like I'm gonna sing this at this layer. Mm. I'm just kind of going with it, and exactly what you're saying is happening. Where it's just like it's just going, 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 and it's like okay, I don't have that experience to be like. You know, you know, step back outside and be like, let's calm this There's something down. so interesting that happens when you sit down to perform. Yeah. When you, you'll feel uncomfortable and you'll mm. think, oh, it's too slow. Yeah. If I make it a little faster, mm. then I'll be comfortable. <laughs> right? This is the worst thought. Right? Because yeah. the, then what's going to happen is you're going to put it at that speed and you're going to feel uncomfortable. And you're going to say, no, it's still too slow. I need to put it at that speed and then I'll be comfortable. Yeah. And before you know it, it's too fast. The problem is that you're not comfortable. Mm. so the thing that you need to work on whenever you have that feeling like it's it's too slow remember speed is an illusion so the thing that you need to work on is being comfortable always yeah you should be able to be comfortable 
at any beat per minute in any situation. And this is where I think Zakarji is just just an absolute genius, is that you see him in any musical situation. I would say in any personal situation as well. He's the most comfortable person in the room. You know, you see him on stage with jazz musicians, with uh, a sitar player, with a sarod player, with a dance troupe. Again, he's the most comfortable person in the room. Yeah. And that's why we love his music so much is because he's so comfortable. Mm. And when you're comfortable, then you're free to create. Ideas come to you. You're not worried about speed. You're not worried about execution. You're just so just the 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 number one thing that I'm thinking about when I when I try to play, when I'm preparing for a concert, when I sit down on stage is just be comfortable. Mm. You know? Yeah. And and the the one of the things that you can really make yourself uh, do to to achieve that is to allow things to be slow, yeah. because it's probably faster than you think it is anyway. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know the first person that pointed that out to me was Indabrit. Well, I remember we were listening to like right now in terms of vocalists, the people that are famous for speed, uh -huh. right? For example, is Goshki is famous for yeah. her for her speed, it's amazing, right? It's just, everyone goes to her for speed, but. There's, there's this old John pre-recording of Koshki because what, from what yeah, I've, I've heard, heard that. you've heard that, right? Yeah. From what I've heard, that Koshki's one of her Real's rocks was John Pri, from what I've come from Graham or whatever, right? Um, so the, this performance of hers is probably from you know the Real's time. She's been Real's John Pri. She gets on stage, she just rips through John Pri. Mm -hmm. She sings about the concept compositions and stuff. But when you listen to that, the perception of speed is like, wow, this is super fast. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to interview, and he's like, well, no, no, the beats per minute isn't what's fast here. Mm. And it's true. When you go back and deconstruct what's being sung... It's the, the it's pr rhythmic precision fun. and the weight yes, exactly. that she's doing. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, and, and the presentation style. And the That's presentation... Yeah. And, and I'll say the same thing is true with Vilay Kansal. Right. There's there's this one recording of Puriya. The, the Puri, famous Puriya. The, the, the Puriya Tans. The famous Puriya. And I, I have to admit, the first time I heard this, my jaw was on the floor. And I was like, oh my. God, it's so yeah. fast. Everyone I, needs to hear this though. Like yeah. everyone that's listening needs to go on Zebra Live Concept Puria and then experience exactly yes. what you just said. I think the first time we listened to it, we just stopped the car on the side of the road. Yeah, yeah just exactly. Just, it's yeah, better yeah. that you don't crash. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we just parked on the side and yeah. just went, what the hell's going on right now? But the thing is, here's the thing. If you go and, and tap out the beats per minute, it's right around 320. Right. 320, 330, which for any modern performing sitar player is... You should be able to play it that's fast. Yeah. That's, and, that's exactly the case with that jump Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, like but, and, and this is why I say speed. This is, Zakarji is absolutely correct. Speed is an illusion. It's not the speed that gets you. Vlad Kansab played wonderfully fast, but it's the energy at, with which he's delivering all of those lines that have that mm. effect on us. And the same thing is true with Zakarji's playing as well. When you hear him, it's the, the power and the clarity and the the rhythmic precision and feel that he's delivering all of the stuff that like really hits you in their gut and you're like, Oh yeah, it's so good. You know? Yeah. It's not the actual speed. So like, yes, you need to work on speed and get faster, but, um, you know, there, there are these other things as well, you know? And, uh, like for example, uh, tonal quality and tone production, that's like, I would say the single most underdeveloped thing that, musicians like pretty much every musician like we can all get better with tone production because really when when at the end of the day we're dealing with sound right so if the quality of your sound is terrible then your whole performance is terrible even if you sang the fastest thing and the most precise thing that's ever been sung in the history of the world if you do it sounding 
horrible, then it's terrible music, you know? Yeah. But if you have great tone production, I, I, I tell my students that uh, tone is where meaning is conveyed in music, right? Yeah. So if, if you play the simplest thing with beautiful tone, everybody in the room will go, ah, ha, 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 kya baat hai, right? Mm. Mm. Whereas if you play the most complicated, intricate, fast thing with terrible tone, no one, gets everyone's going to be lost. looking at Facebook. You know? gets <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it's what you, you kind of touched on it earlier, where it's like, you can, if you can play at this speed, right, mm. really high speed, not playing at that speed is what gives, what puts all the kind of magic into the lower speeds. Yes, exactly. And, and this Headroom. Is a, exactly. And this is the advice that my my teacher teacher you know she Mira Banerjee she he was telling me that this is what she said to him mm. one of her last pieces of advice to him was there's there's a Malcolm's recording of his that kind of got a lot of you know critical acclaim everyone loved it etc et but he was he was looking around for some advice on it like someone give me because his Guruji Pandit uh, Prashun Banerjee had passed away by then and he was learning with Vidushi Mira Banerjee and he was like give me some you know how do I improve on this and he wasn't he was finding it hard to get that mm. But she said to him, she's like, okay, now whatever you, you kind of sang, it was incredible. Get rid of half of it. <laughs> and, and she was like, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but so I'll, I'll move on from the example. But basically what was going on was that whatever you can play or sing yeah. and you don't play or sing yeah. is going to make whatever you do play yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, more beautiful, this more impactful. I, this is why I love uh, Miles Davis. Right. Because everything that he plays, it's just, it's framed with, you know what negative space is in, in painting or in uh, drawing, yeah. right? Yeah. It's the space around whatever object you're, you know, portraying. A lot of, a lot in food as well. And plating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. He has, he has three restaurants. Yeah, so I heard, yeah, they're, I've heard they're great. There you go. That, yeah, that's where <laughs> this came from. Uh, and yeah, so anyone that... That means that you're successful. Yeah, well, yeah. Or you just like get diabetes and like your leg will get chopped off. I think it's all about the restaurants. Yeah, but exactly. But you need to like, you can also. You don't need like, a leg like, to sing. You're no, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but still. Yeah, but it comes down to the thing about your philosophy about being the best and sacrificing something is what it makes it worth it. It's the best yeah. restaurant. You're going to sacrifice your life. We'll go uh, to the gym together next huh? time. Yeah, take him to the gym. Let's do it. Although, you know what? He used to go to the gym a lot. So he was quite strong. Yeah. But he was still fat when he used to go to the gym. <laughs> Yeah. So, <laughs> well, you know, it's not just the gym. It, you know, your your health is made in the kitchen. You can't out exercise a bad diet. I is this all you've been working on? No, no, I know, I know that. It's just <laughs> that's why you open three kitchens. Yeah, three public kitchens. <laughs> that's that's why what you do. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know what? Let's 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 wrap up. We've been over an hour. Josh, thank you so much. Where can people kind of find your music? Are you on on social? Yeah, I'm Instagram. I'm quite active on uh, Facebook and Instagram. I am on Twitter, though, not as much. Is it just Josh Feinberg? Just Josh Feinberg. I'm the only Josh Feinberg who plays sitar uh. <laughs> in the world. Yeah. It would be a little bit easier than if I was like, uh, you know, Abhijit Banerjee or something. Yeah. This yeah. is like 100 million of those. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, there's only a couple of Josh Feinbergs, and I'm the only one who plays sitar. So. Cool. Um, so, yeah, you can find me um, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, my website. Uh, joshfeinbergmusic.com and Feinberg is uh, F like uh, Frank F-E-I-N-B-E-R-G and uh, uh, yeah so connect and you and, teach uh, you, do you teach online or I, do. I, I did see that you have a Patreon as well if people want to I do have a Patreon and I, I share um, practice tips 
and composition. Sometimes I share whatever I'm working on. Or, yeah, and uh, I'd recommend that to like. Uh, there's heaps of people that play sitar, right? And I'd like to say that to whoever's listening as well that uh, you want to find the right teacher who can kind of break down certain things and like. And in your playing and in the kind of tutorials that you, little tutorials that you share on 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 social as well, I see that. So anyone that that kind of wants to learn, I would sincerely like I would I would recommend you and be like oh, you so know much. go on your Patreon if you're like the little things even the little tidbits that you share I learn a lot from them as well so I'm sure that people that learn Sitar specifically will definitely kind of benefit from them so oh, we'll all so there everyone should go there next time you come we'll sit down again we, you know lovely to have you and then, that's right this is just the the first installment so we didn't talk about so much we we need to dig into your no, this in unpacking, Karana, the unpacking the unpacking yes. needs to happen. Yeah, yeah, when you talk about Igrana, yeah, we didn't touch on anything, but but we'll, we'll so start many... now. We both have a flight at your flight's at nine thirty in the morning. Yes, and Mine's yours is at ten thirty. Ten at ten in the morning, so we yeah. need to wrap up and then get some food and then. Yeah, and I didn't get to sleep till four a.m. last night, and uh, yeah, you uh, practice My uh, my colleague here, Abhijit Dhan, he didn't also get to sleep until three, so we're uh, naked. Is yes, naked, naked, naked. That's what we say. We say we're naked. All right, it's quite a British cool. thing, isn't it? I don't know. Is it? So. Well, I mean, just uh, is is knackered British? No idea. No idea. <laughs> but, um, I'm bamboozled about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This has no, been a pleasure. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Cool.